Welcome back to If I Only Knew, listeners. I'm joined today by co-host Matt. G'day, Matt. Hello, Fred. How are you going? And special guest extraordinaire, Brittany, and Brittany's guide dog, and possibly one of the most popular people that I know, Kuma. How are you, Brittany? I am good, and Kuma is nice and cozy and sleeping. I will say that there have been calls from people that know us all to have Kuma replace me on the podcast. <laughs> um, and whilst I'm open to the idea, we, we might stick with the current format for a little while longer. For those that uh, have tuned into our last couple of episodes, we're talking a lot about the idea of inclusion um, and the idea of working in a world where sometimes things don't get adjusted to meet the needs of everybody. Brittany is somebody that Matt and I both work with, care a lot about, an exceptional member of our customer service team who won me over in her interview when she made me laugh and showed me her customer service skill and then then in the end mentioned to me that she had a visual impairment, which was interesting insofar as she felt that she needed to mention it. Uh, Brittany joined our organisation and we were lucky enough to grab her and then I realised that she was suffering in silence around some things that we could change and Brittany was good enough to help lead the charge and make the environment that she works in work for her and it was a really painless process in my opinion and one that I've learnt a lot from. Brittany, how is it all going? How is the life of a super, super wonderful customer service person uh, working ostensibly for me going for you? So far, so good. I can't complain too much. Not about you, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very loaded question there, Fred. Yeah, I feel like you're fishing for compliments or something. Excellent. It wasn't really, but okay. (laughs) I think it's been excellent. It's been a really big, um, you know, excuse the pun, but an eye-opener for me as well in just realising that people do not understand and if people don't understand you shouldn't judge them for it but just advocate for yourself so in the beginning you know I was always trying to prove myself and you know keep up with everybody else but then you kind of have to take a step back and be like no if I get these adjustments if I get what I need I can keep up and probably excel so there's no point trying to do it the way everybody else is doing it, uh, change a few things and I will do the job just as well, just a bit differently. If we stop the podcast there, I think that's probably the key message that a lot of people could take on in life. Is make them work to you, not uh, suffering in silence the way other people do it. Brittany, is it right to say that you weren't born visually impaired? Uh, no, I was born... Um, healthy um it was when i was about three years old i was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and this was back before all the amazing pumps and uh, constant glucose monitoring systems that we have now it was a very very strict uh routine um, needle at 7 30 needle at 5 30 three meals a day three snacks in between all of that uh, but could only play for 10 minutes so you know poor mum and dad had to run around chasing a three-year-old trying to give her injections and um it got to about my late teens and early uh, yeah, early 20s i decided to rebel a little bit um i didn't want to stick to a structure anymore i wanted to you know do what my friends were doing and through poor management of my diabetes i ended up with uh, diabetic retinopathy macular degeneration 
um, and macular ischemia, which altogether um, led me to low vision around 23 years of age. When you when you think about that time and you think about, you know, obviously understanding um, that things were changing for you, I would imagine that there were some mixed feelings about it. Do you ever, you know, reflect on what it was like with those big terms being thrown at you around your vision? I've had a lot of time to reflect about it. At the beginning, I was very angry. Um, anybody going through grief, you've got the five stages. I think I was in angry for quite a long time. Um, but looking back, I was heading down a very, very dangerous path of um, with illicit drugs and with mental health. So I have come to realize that vision loss did actually save my life of a life that isn't worth living or would have been very hard to get out of. So as much as anybody would sit back and say how terrible, you know, you've lost your sight, you've lost so much of your world, I would have lost a lot more if I didn't have these complications come my way. Do you think it was that period of rebellion uh, before the vision loss was you dealing with the idea that there was a health issue that you had to manage? It sounds to me like you... um, at some point, part of your rebellion was against the health condition itself. Definitely. Uh, I guess it's quite hard for people to understand. Like, diabetes is a very, you know, common thing around. But having type 1 diabetes all throughout primary school, I was never allowed to go to camps. Mm. Every time I had to go on a school excursion, my mum had to be there. And, like, this kind of, like, constantly having somebody that, like, when I got out on my own, I was like, I don't need my mum anymore, I don't need my dad, I'm going to do this on my own. And they used to look after me all the time, so I'm going to be on my own and not look after me at all. Um, And also being a teenager, thinking I know better than all the health stuff, um, it all does play a part in me. Just not wanting to deal with it, because I had to deal with it for all of my life. So now that you thrive and have unique needs, what do you think's changed for you, other than the obvious? I think I just believe in myself a little bit more. Um, I realise that there, there is always going to be worse than what you have. So it is for me that change of mindset of, okay, I have to, you know, check my sugar levels. I have to have needles. I will, you know, forever have this vision impairment. It makes it a lot easier to deal with the little parts of the diabetes with the vision impairment. And kind of advocate for other teenagers as well so for me I think my mindset's just changed to be you know it's something I have to deal with it's not a bad thing it's just you know another part of life. How do people treat you when they realize that you've got diverse vision? (laughs) Um, I was actually talking about this um, before Um, (laughs) it's a case of Nobody ever comes to me, like, when I tell them that I'm, like, losing my sight or I have low vision, nobody ever turns around and be like, oh, well, at least you're still alive. They always come to me with the pity party, with the sympathy, like, you poor thing, how could you do I couldn't do that if I was you. Mm, you're so right. strong, I'm proud of you. Um, and it gets a bit disheartening and it gets a little bit, like, I don't want to tell people because I can't. I can't handle the sympathy because it just gets a little bit much because I don't think I'm doing that 
like I'm not that brave for doing what I'm doing because it is quite easy and it's normal for me. Mm. Do you find the sympathy patronising? Oh, yes. Um, one of the worst ones I had, so my partner, um, he is fully sided and he's never actually realised it before this one time. We went to a real estate agent and we were signing some documents for a new house that we were renting and the lady turned around and she's like, oh my God, I feel so sorry for you. I was directing it at my partner and he was saying, oh, if my partner, you know, had to deal with me being like, he would, he would have left me by now. You're so oh. good at staying with her. And I was like, wow. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of, and he kind of was like, um, I understand now. Like, I understand this sympathy and empathy, like, you know, with the difference between them now. That, that real estate agent really just told on themselves and told on their own relationship if their partner would have left them in that situation, I feel like. Very, um, he, even situations where people say to us, like, you know, that he's doing such a good thing by, like, dating mm. it he's kind of like, but why? She would be the same person no matter what. It's just, he gets to skip to the front of the lines now because I, like, pretend to, like, <laughs> get to the front. <laughs> <laughs> the disabled parking uh, slips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Brittany. You had a career prior to the career that you have now. I believe it was a hairdresser. Is that correct? Yes. Um, hairdresser for, uh, I think, about eight years. Fantastic. Was there any grief around giving up that career as your vision changed? Uh, definitely. Um, that was my large denial portion of um, my grief. Um, there was... I think I was legally blind from about September, but I didn't leave hairdressing till about February because I just didn't want to. Um, but it got to the point where my boss was getting complaints about the, you know, haircuts I was doing and colors because I wasn't doing it as you know, appropriate or matching as well. Um, so there was just a lot of me not wanting to accept it because I loved hairdressing. I still do. I'm doing videos for Vision Australia at the moment, um, teaching or showing people how to do their hair with the outside. Um, so I'm still very much in the hairdressing world. I, again, just a little bit different as in like just showing people how to do their hair without needing to see it. So I love the job. It was very hard to change. Um, and to leave that job, I will admit, it's kind of still one of my like sore spots is like thinking about how much I loved it. One of the things that I suspect, because we've all gone to great hairdressers that make it an experience rather than just a haircut, is that your customer service skills were very much honed in that service industry. And, um, and in interviewing Brittany, I knew I wanted to hire her from about the first three minutes of the phone call because the role is about creating relationships with customers over the phone and Brittany, you know, that cliche, she had me at hello. Brittany, I'm keen to understand what role work plays in your life and your health. Oh, it entertains me. It gives me something to do during the day. You, it's very, very easy to fall down a dark rabbit hole when you don't have anything to look forward to. Um, I would wake up at about Twelve or one in the more uh, in the afternoon. Sorry, <laughs> uh, would like maybe take me an hour or so to clean the house, and then I would just sit there and I uh, might start drinking at about three because well, what else do I have to mm. do? So having 
feeling important, feeling that I have something to do, feeling that I have, you know, a case manager of a thousand participants that I need to look after gives you that strive and that importance that, you know, it is worth getting up, it is worth making that trek, it is, you know, you are important. What was finding a job like? It was a nightmare. <laughs> um, I was with Vision Australia, the employment services, um, but I just found it, as much as they are brilliant, it, they are very specific in the type of jobs that they will apply for you, where I took it on my own to um, apply for jobs myself through SEEK, and I applied for over 40 roles um, and you were the only one to give me a call back. <laughs> um, so that is how hard it is um, because we technically have to disclose in a cover letter that we do have um, a disability, so to speak. So um, it is very, very easy for them to turn around and be like, oh, we encourage diversity and inclusion in their footnote, but that doesn't mean that they have to reply. Hmm. I think it's very fascinating because I would say there's 39 businesses that missed out and um, sucked into them. I think it's also interesting that people with disability have to disclose, but people with aberrant personalities and uh, <laughs> bad, um, bad personalities don't. And I'd rather interview um, a thousand people with diverse abilities than one more. Uh, asshole, but um, <laughs> but it's interesting, you know. We talk about diversity and inclusion, and it's a little bit like a recent episode we had on the LGBTQI community, where if I apply for a job, I don't have to disclose the aberrant parts of my personality. But you're legally obligated to tell people you have an ability. Um, most straight people don't have to tell people who they want to love, but everybody that's gay needs to come out. And I think when we talk about diversion, uh, diversity and, and inclusion. We need to move past this idea that there is some onus on people mm. in groups mm. to let the world know how to engage with them rather than the world being built to engage with everybody, mm. um, in my opinion. You have talked about the idea of um, the service that you provide to the, the community that you're a part of now. Um, you were recently featured in a TV interview around guide dogs with the superstar being... Um, Sadly, not yourself, but Kuma, um, the scene stealer. And um, Kuma is our most valued staff member in this organisation. <laughs> I will say this. Kuma has their own uniform. Um, and unlike me, Kuma gets to sleep on a comfy bed. I have to steal into a uh, an interview room and catch 15 minutes when people think I'm otherwise <laughs> occupied. What was it like doing the TV work that you did, uh, Brittany? And, and was it good, bad, or a bit of both? That's a little bit of both with the TV side of it. Uh, again, trying to work out who I want to, or who I was needing to advocate for. So, um, doing the puppy games for seeing IDOX, um, that was primarily about raising money to make more, more uh, Kumas, so to speak, <laughs> uh, to make more um, ready available, you know, dog guides for people that needed them. So, again, it's kind of sometimes hard to, like, pull away and be like, but 
I technically do more work than what she does. So that's always my biggest one is trying to pull myself away from the situation because we all know that, you know, they do make our lives a lot easier, but a lot of people don't understand how much the person, the handler has to do and how less that the dogs do. Like they don't talk, they don't know where home is, they don't know how to find the cornflakes at Coles. Right, um, right, yeah. <laughs> that's something that we do. So uh, doing a lot of the interviews, you know that the uh, dog guides get get the people in not so much the stories about ourselves so i find it good having that publicity but then also hard to just step back and mm. not correct people on things because i know it's going to get that advertisement they need I'm, I'm keen to know just from a practical perspective there'll be people that might listen to this that are going down the path of getting assistance through guide dogs how long did it take you to get used to working with a guide dog and was it what you expected uh, so it actually took me um, about a year and a half, two years before I actually put my name down for one, uh, just because it's a big adjustment, not just for myself, but for my family. So again, like with my partner and my stepson, they also had to come to deal with the fact that it would be a dog in our lives that's not a family dog, not a pet dog. So that was always very hard to wrap our heads around. Um, and then getting her it took about over a year before i got allocated and matched um, with the appropriate uh, dog to suit my lifestyle and then it took about six months for me to stop dragging my feet while she was guiding me everywhere because you lose when you don't use a cane you lose your uh, sense of the ground in front of you you are just relying on the pull of the harness so you don't actually feel any uh ground in front of you until you step on it so you drag your feet for about six months go through about 10 pairs of shoes and then you finally build your confidence up but it takes another two years before you get that bond where it's almost telepathic where i feel like i can just think of something and kuma's like yep okay we'll go that way mm. um so it takes a while for that bond really to build and that confidence around having um, an assistance uh animal you know, giving over that trust to another being is quite hard. Do people ever see you in society as vulnerable because of Kuma? Are there any being, you know, people that break the rules, try to touch the dog, those sorts of things? Uh, not so much pat. A lot of people do know about the not patting um, the dogs. Uh, the hardest one's actually uh, with distracting. So I think people... I, well, I don't understand what people think when they're sitting there clicking their tongues or saying pop pop puppy and like you know looking at her and trying to get her attention I don't know what they're trying to do in those situations because if Kuma goes up to them I go up to them as well. <laughs> so it's a case of you know you're gonna have to talk to me not the dog um I actually find people are more find people more vulnerable with a cane um I was grabbed, pulled, touched, pushed um, into certain positions that I did not want to be in with a cane because people don't understand how they work or how we find doorways or the amount of people that would grab the bottom of my cane and start pulling me along like I was an animal to get to a spot and oh. you would 
be so vulnerable in those situations that you didn't want to upset the other person. So you'll just say thank you, even though they just made your life a lot, you know, worse and you're going to have anxiety for the next 10 hours. That's interesting, isn't it? Because if somebody grabbed me by any part of my body, that'd be a, a fight. Um, and I wouldn't feel compelled to be yeah. nice about it. But there's almost that um, that recognition that they mean well, even if they're doing the wrong thing. Was there ever a time where you lost your temper at somebody? Uh, not really. I guess in those situations, because the hardest part, especially with the vision impairment, is you don't know who is doing it. So my biggest fear is turning around and like telling somebody off and you know, not knowing what that sort of person would do or how they would react. So you always just try to diffuse the situation and get away from them as quick as possible, but in a nice way. It is something you kind of have to learn very quickly to do, um, especially, you know, to ask you, do you need any help, ma'am? Like, no, I'm good, I'm good. There's no, no, I'll help, I'll help. And then they grab your arm and help you anyway. And you're just like, okay. <laughs> It strikes me as a bit of a recurring feature of people with like a variety of abilities is that it feels like the idea of consent and bodily autonomy and like um, personal space seems to matter less in public and to a lot of people if you have a cane or, or a guide dog or whatever um, because people seem to think that, oh, it's okay for me to just move their body because they can't see so well. So it's going to take them slightly longer to get through that doorway or whatever. So I'm just going to push them the right way or whatever it's, it's it just strikes me as very strange that we've we seem to have this as a, as a common theme i guess with the white cane it's very kind of specific to the condition um but it is very um very very common so i could just imagine with the other um abilities as well that it could be just as worse mm. i'm interested to know Brittany, were there hobbies and interests that you've adapted through the change in your vision no live music or things like that that you found changed but didn't go away? I guess I actually got a little bit more into music. Um, I was always very uh, big on music um, and festivals and like theatre shows and I thought that I would miss that and same as movies as well. Um, and I found um, there's like audio descriptions um, in movies that I had no idea about. So I go to a movie and I get a special headset and there's a voice that actually describes scene changes. Oh. Um, so that's what was like, you know, when you first get told that you're going to lose your sight, you're like, oh no, all the movies. And then you find out, no, no, you can still watch every movie. And um, Netflix is a beautiful, beautiful streaming service where every Netflix original um, show or movie is already um, audio described, so you don't have to wait for it to come out um, six months later. That's a fantastic service for what is already, in my opinion, an excellent streaming service. <laughs> Not sponsored. Not sponsored, <laughs> although we'll take their money if they're open to it. You know, there's no dramas with it. Um, you work in an environment with other people that are engaging with you that have different and diverse needs and abilities. Do you ever find it triggering or is it something that you feel is consistent with what you want your life to be? Um, I don't ever find it too true. I guess I'm very, very lucky that the company uh, working with you and the field that we work in um, being allied health, that people 
a very understanding. Um, I've never, nobody has actually come in, a clinician or another um, participant support advisor or management, nobody has actually ever come in and said, so what's wrong with you? Um, they've all just been like, I've said, you know, you know, this puma, my seeing eye dog. Um, yeah, I have low vision. And they're just like, okay. And then treat me exactly the same as they would anybody else. So I am finding it a very, very good spot to be in, in the sense of I'm not feeling left out. I'm not feeling that I can't do anything. And nobody's reminding me on a day-to-day basis of what I can't do. Uh, so I am quite lucky in that sense. So again, I'm not too sure how others in other situations, but I'm very lucky in that sense of working in a very great environment. Well, it's interesting that you say that they never ask the question, what's wrong with you? Because they're constantly asking me that question. Um, <laughs> I think one of the things that I find really interesting is not long ago, um, I walked into our Sydney office and you're up here working and Kuma was uh, hanging out next to you, just kind of enjoying the day, and and the office was a buzz. We had a visitor, so that was always a good thing. You get aware of a service animal when everybody is so excited that there's a service animal in the office, and then at the same time they know they can't interact with it. Right. So it's yeah, almost yeah, like yeah. kids looking through the window of a lolly shop. And Kuma is quite the attractive um, chocolate Labrador. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, that's right. Um. What's it like doing things like going interstate? Do you find it fun and exciting and rewarding? Is there a bit of trepidation? Well, that was my first trip with Kuma. Um, so I do get batched with her at the start of 2020s. And I think that I was very nervous in the beginning. Um, but then afterwards, it was just such a relief having her um, because as I didn't have any confidence. She didn't actually recognize that she was in a different state. So she was just like, you know, yes, I go left. Yes, I go right. I'll find the door for you. Don't worry. I got you back. Um, so I found it quite um, good. Once I was there, so you always get that nervousness. I'm not too sure if anybody else is, but I always get that nervousness before I go somebody, somewhere new. But then once I was there, it, that kind of relief kind of like washes over you like oh, it's not as bad as I imagined in my head so we definitely do have more interstate trips uh, planned coming up hmm. uh, avoid Brisbane not because of any particular <laughs> needs you have it's just not a good place to go um, we'll get letters too hot anyway it is too oh, hot yeah. it is too hot particularly for a Melbourneite Brittany, if you're thinking about, you know, if you were mentoring young people now that were coming through the system the way you did, where their abilities are changing, they're acquiring new and unique needs, what would you say to them in regards to that cycle of grief that you talked about? Because everybody goes through their grief differently, so... I'll never be one to tell people how they should grieve, but always know that once you're through it, that there is there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is places. There are government schemes like job access there that can help you get any job you want. As long as you realise your needs and you're confident that you can do it, then you can do it. So I will admit um, I'm glad I'm good at, you know, uh, conversations for it because I had no <laughs> no um, ability to work on computers. I didn't even know like what Outlook was before I got the job. But I thought, hey, 
that can't be too too hard for me to figure it out and advocated for myself and got the job and you know I'm nearly a year in and I'm like one of the um well I'm pretty much the main person on the phones um, when people call in so for me it's just always believing in yourself and you can do whatever you want to do. So where are you going to take your career, Brittany? What's next? If we were sitting here in five years' time revisiting the podcast and we're talking about the role that you do, what do you see that you would do with your career? I would love to stay with the job that I'm in, but maybe upgrading from the um, support advisory role and more working in um, connections and partnerships and like bringing people together. I find the hardest part of a disability in any form or any shape is isolation, is not thinking that there's anybody else out there like you or that has the same abilities as you. So for me, it's just always connecting everybody to, you know, people with the same abilities or different abilities, just like bringing everybody together in the one space so we all have a platform to talk on. I certainly think that that would be a strength of yours and and, uh, I predict with some certainty that that is a very attainable career goal for you. I I thought you might say my job, which would have made me really happy because on some days I don't want it. I think it's interesting to talk about um, the change that you've experienced in your life, particularly around, you know, technology and treatment that you talked about with um, the diabetes and, and I wonder... Do you do you have hopes for what might be around the corner using technology uh, for someone with your unique needs? Is there anything on the radar that you keep an eye out on and think if that ever comes out, that'll be a great thing that'll save me twenty minutes a day? Or well, so it is in the pipeworks at the moment. So I recently uh, was funded through. uh, Medicare uh, constant glucose monitoring, which is yep. it's just a sensor that sits on my arm. It speaks to my phone, so I don't have to deal with the finding the strip, putting the strip in, realizing it's upside down, taking it out, putting it the right way around, you know, pricking my finger, drawing the blood, trying to remember where I pricked the finger. <laughs> um, and it takes about like 10 minutes just to check my sugar levels. Uh, when now it's literally, I just run my hand, uh, my phone over my arm, and it tells me my sugar levels. So eventually what they're wanting to do is have the sensors talk to um, an insulin pump. So you don't have to do anything at all. The sensor will talk to the pump and then the pump will, you know, inject as much insulin as you need. And all you have to do is every two weeks, like change the lines over um, and put another sensor in. And that will save pretty much like two hours a day for the rest of my life um, in monitoring my own diabetes. It's really interesting, isn't it? It's about, you know, simple things that give you back time. I think that's remarkable. And it would have been, I don't know what I was expecting the answer to that question to be, but it's um, sounds like really simple stuff that's obviously aspirational because not enough of us have going, are going through that issue that, uh, that they're pushing it forward as a health priority. Brittany, what would you say to the listeners out there that haven't interacted with somebody with diverse ability before? How would you tell them to react when they meet you the first time? My biggest advocacy for myself when people are meeting anybody is to just ask questions. Be nice. 
ask for help but listen as well uh, a lot of people tend to say um, that you know they've asked the questions but then they don't listen to the answer so they do the wrong thing um, that is the biggest issue that you know people have you can come up to me and be like do you need any help and if I say no I'm okay then accept that they okay they don't need help you can walk away from the situation um, I guess a lot of it is just listen to the person you're talking to or interacting because we are we know how to help ourselves we know what we need we know what we want so if you listen to what we are saying then you can never get it wrong i think that's a really powerful message that we started with a really powerful message and we end with a really powerful message um man is there anything you wanted to add to the interview um, look, it's been an excellent showcase of your ability to ask insightful questions, Fred. I suppose it sounds to me, Brittany, like you've worked with a variety of different organisations and institutions, whether it be for support or funding or work or Guide Dogs Australia or whatever. Do you think that you can tell a difference when an institution is perhaps run by or, or very inclusive towards people with different abilities compared to when maybe it's just a, a set of bureaucrats making decisions and making rules? Does that feel different or is that something that I'm making up in my own head? <laughs> uh, no, so there is a difference. So say like Vision Australia, uh, mm. Seeing Eye Dogs and Guide Dogs Australia, they are very specific to vision impairment, uh, low vision and blindness. So they understand, they know exactly what we need mm. and they understand the specifics of it. Where when there are people that aren't experts in abilities and aren't experts on kind of any type of support out there, it tends to be run on people's ideas of what people can do um, right. when they're putting themselves in that situation. Um, so I, I've mentioned this many times before talking to people. Um, people generally think of uh, blindness and low vision as the worst thing in the world that can happen to you so we tend to get that you know overwhelming sympathy mm. that overwhelming support from people where people that are suffering from um, like invisible disabilities um, like autism or ADHD people don't tend to think it is as you know, or they don't need as much as what somebody with a physical disability has so it is very hit and miss when it comes to a group of people running something with no idea on any sort of um, ability out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, I don't know, I kind of feel like that's a, a common experience with, for, for most people when dealing with a faceless bureaucracy that doesn't feel like they're an expert on your specific situation or condition, but I imagine it's a much more serious concern or, or makes a much bigger difference when you're dealing with something as kind of important to your life as vision impairment or, or similar stuff. So it's great that we have those perhaps expert organisations in Australia, but also says something about the need for more of that expertise in in all the other places that you've got to seek help and work with or whatever yeah definitely and i for, like even with um blindness and low vision there is only vision australia um right. so that it is very very limited to the specific um supports that we do have um so it does make it hard um, mm, mm. because there's wait lists, there's time there's other people as well yeah. like 
can't just expect to, you know, be put at the front of the queue because, you know, it just happened to you. Uh, so I guess there is a lot of improvement that they could do with that specific, um, you know, specific sport supports. Because um, I could just imagine that the other, um, like, Autism Australia, um, uh, I can't remember, I think sense-wide um, for people with deafness, uh, all those other ones, there's very, very limited specific uh, supports out there. Mm, right. Brittany, you've been fantastic. Um, you're a fantastic person to work with. Um, one of the things I've learnt is this idea of inclusion is not about some sort of false nobility when you're engaging people with diverse abilities it's just about talking to them and understanding what works for them and don't touch the cane do not <laughs> yeah the cane is not consent thank you for listening this podcast is a better pod group production with special thanks to our researcher nicola binks executive producer matt blanche the providers of our theme song with credits that are in our bio and of course you the listener it's important to remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Whilst there are therapeutic themes discussed, in no way is the podcast considered treatment. And in the event you're in a psychological emergency, please reach out in whatever way you can through triple zero or Lifeline 13 11 14. It's important to remember that the discussion is for entertainment purposes and the opinions voiced by podcast hosts are theirs and theirs alone. Any reference to copyright or copywritten material is, of course, the copyright of the copyright owner and or relevant corporate entities. Thank you for listening to Bed Pod Group Productions and tune in to some of our other excellent pod productions on this network.